Hey everyone, you're listening to the Respiritualized Podcast, a fresh take on life's biggest questions. I'm Lokaram Das, here today with my co-host, Johnny Tai. On September 19th, 1965, Bhaktivedanta Swami, known by his students as Srila Prabhupada, arrived in New York Harbor. He was 69 years old. The 35-day voyage aboard a cargo ship had taken a toll on his aging body. While crossing the Red Sea, his seasickness had intensified, and in two consecutive days he had suffered two heart attacks. On the night of the second day, Krishna had appeared to him in a dream, and within a few days, Bhaktivedanta Swami's pain had subsided, and he gradually recovered. His few possessions included a typewriter, an umbrella, a multi-tier cooker he used to prepare meals, and a small supply of dried cereal. He had only 40 rupees in cash, the modern equivalent of about $50. In addition, he had traveled with several trunks containing hardbound copies of the first three volumes of his Srimad Bhagavatam. After a brief stay in Butler, Pennsylvania with a man named Gopal Agarwal and his wife Sally, Bhaktivedanta Swami ventured to New York. Everything about America was foreign to him, the food, the language, the culture, the weather but he persevered with full faith in the importance of his mission, knowing his fate was in the hands of God. Initially, he stayed with a yoga teacher named Dr. Mishra, who stayed on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. But Srila Prabhupada was not very inspired by the caliber of students whom Dr. Mishra attracted to his classes. Most of them were upper middle class, aged women, looking for an entertaining and sophisticated experience of Oriental culture. They weren't the kind of ardent spiritual seekers the Swami had hoped to find in the West. By the spring of 1966, the Swami had relocated to the Bowery, one of New York City's most run-down and impoverished neighborhoods. He began regularly holding kirtans and lecturing on the Bhagavad Gita to a small group of hippies who had moved to Manhattan's Lower East Side to participate in New York's counterculture. That summer, several of his students pitched in to rent a small storefront on 2nd Avenue, And on July 11, 1966, Bhaktivedanta Swami registered the International Society for Christian Consciousness as an official, non-profit, religious organization. I want to read from one of the flyers Prabhupada's early disciples published to advertise the classes and kirtans that they were hosting. It was titled, Stay High Forever. No more coming down. Practice Krishna Consciousness. Expand your consciousness by practicing the transcendental sound vibration. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. This chanting, the flyer read, will cleanse the dust from the mirror of the mind and free you from all material contamination. It is practical, self-evident, and requires no artificial aid. Try it and be blissful all the time. What a promise. Mm. Pretty good advertising. Um, <laughs> right. Sounds pretty pretty attractive. Yeah. Um, it occurs to me that um, there's like a, a lofty promise. Like, yeah. you'll be blissful all the time and it'll purify the heart of all these unwanted things. <clears throat> and intellectually, I may be convinced and I have some faith in this, Um, at the same time, um, in my direct experience, I may not be experiencing that when I chant. 
So if I'm chanting Hare Krishna or any spiritual practice and I'm not feeling perhaps this bliss that I may be expecting from it or even um, all I'm experiencing is just, you know, who I am as I am now. Um, should I just force myself to do it anyway, although I may not be experiencing something or do I need to be experiencing something to do it? Um, how does one engage in a practice they may not be experiencing what they want from it, especially this chanting of Hare Krishna? Yeah, we live in a consumer culture where we have everything at our fingertips practically the moment we want it. Amazon recently introduced same-day shipping. Mm. I was astonished. I could order something and they'd have it to me within a few hours as if there's like an Amazon store somewhere in my neighborhood. <laughs> there must be. Right. There's a warehouse somewhere, you know, and a lot of workers, like little worker bees, running around picking out the things people are ordering and sending them off. Mm. So we live in this modern culture where we expect to have everything we want immediately, and it's not very realistic when it comes to the things that are actually valuable in life. Take friendship, for example. This is one thing that a lot of people today are struggling with, especially because of the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. I was reading an article recently that just 10 or 15 years ago, the average American felt like they had close friends. Only 3% of Americans said, I don't have any close friends. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, that number jumped up to 14%. That means about one in six Americans say, I don't feel like I have any close friends. This is Americans between the age of 30 and 50. Mm. Friendship takes a long time to cultivate. That same mm. article said about, it takes about 200 hours mm. of time with another person to really form a deep and meaningful friendship. Mm. This, of course, is just an estimate, but it gives us some sense of what kind of an investment is required mm. to form meaningful relationships. Mm. So similarly, when it comes to our spiritual practice, we have to invest time. We're talking about transforming our consciousness. Mm. The mind is a very powerful agent. It, it really can control our life if we aren't careful. The Bhagavad Gita explains that the mind is meant to be subordinate to our intelligence. Mm. For instance, somebody may have a, an idea or a desire that, that occurs to their mind. It kind of appears in the mind unexpectedly. But then the intelligence kicks in and it, it weighs in and tells you whether or not that idea is good. <laughs> one, one teacher I, I, was, I heard, he said, when you're standing at the edge of a tall building, the mind asks, I wonder what it would be like to jump, to jump off. And the intelligence is the voice that kicks in and says, we're not going to do that right now. Mm. Or let's say road rage. A person's driving along and somebody cuts them off and they think, you know, I'm just going to go up and run this guy off the road. Mm. Some people actually do that. But then the intelligence kicks in. Mm. Your, your intelligence kicks in and says, no, it's not worth it. Mm. Why 
risk my life and this person's life just because I got a little bit angry. Mm. So a person who has a healthy intelligence is able to resist their lower urges. Now we're in a position as practitioners of yoga that we have a mix of our, our whole consciousness is like a mixed bag. We have some lower impulses and some higher impulses, like the impulse to seek out the absolute truth. Mm. So we want to do everything we can to cultivate that impulse, mm. that innate knowledge that we have that, yes, something beyond me exists. I'm going to find it. I'm going to experience that. Mm. So meditation, especially mantra meditation, and this Hare Krishna mantra is praised throughout all the Vedic texts as the most effective mantra you can chant in your mm. meditation. This meditation is very powerful in helping us develop our higher state of, of being, our spiritual state of being. Mm. And it takes discipline, it takes practice, and it takes time. Mm. And eventually the habit does develop. You really do transform your consciousness. That You go from feeling like, I have to force myself to meditate, I have to force myself to chant every day, to looking forward to it. Wow, this is time I'm going to get to spend with Krishna. Mm. So it just takes time. We, we just have to be patient. Um, it seems to me that there's an interim space between beginning this chanting of Hare Krishna and feeling blissful all the time. Because I don't immediately experience, oh, I'm blissed out all the time because I'm chanting this Hare Krishna Maha Mantra. Yeah. So to bring it a little closer to, like, this liminal space that I'm in, um, is there something I should expect from the chanting or that I can expect from my chanting? Yeah, we can expect that if we stick to it, then over time... We're talking over the course of several years. Mm -hmm. You'll experience a greater pleasure and satisfaction than in any other activity you've ever done so far in your life. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but it will continue to become more and more pleasurable. Mm -hmm. Krishna Chaitanya says, Anandam Buddhi Vardhanam, that it's an ever increasing ocean of bliss, this chanting of Hare Krishna. Mm. There's a reason why saints of India would chant 20 hours out of the day or more, mm. 20, 20 to 22 hours. They would sleep maybe one or two hours every day because they were so enraptured by this mantra. There's another verse from the Vedas. Ramante yogi no nante satyanande chadatmani. The mystics derive unlimited transcendental pleasure from the Absolute Truth, and therefore the Supreme Absolute, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, is also called Rama. Rama means he who gives pleasure. Mm. So all pleasure in the world ultimately originates in this Supreme Person, Krishna, and that person is fully present in his name, mm. this spiritual sound vibration. So we can expect that we'll one day experience that if we just stick to our practice. But in the beginning, it's not going to come so easily. Mm. Our conditioning is very strong. 
it takes time to form a new habit, even a material habit. Mm -hmm. And we're not talking about just adopting a new material habit. It didn't come. Okay. <clears throat> we're not talking about adopting just a new material habit. We're talking about completely transforming a complete overhaul of our consciousness mm -hmm. from self-centered to God-centered. Mm -hmm. Most people don't realize, or they don't want to admit the extent to which they're selfish. Mm -hmm. It's actually a frightening thing to admit to oneself. And it's very pernicious. It's hidden in so many ways. Yeah, yeah. Everything about my life, <clears throat> everything, even when I'm doing, you know, I think I'm helping somebody else, practically all of the time, there is some subtle selfish motive. Mm-hmm. So the only way to overcome that is to give up our material ego mm. and replace it with a spiritual one. That instead of my, my, false, my false ego being at the center, my spiritual ego is at the center. And that's, I'm a servant of Krishna. Mm. My existence is for Krishna's pleasure and by extension for the pleasure of all living beings who are all connected to Krishna. Mm. I find that um, this brings me to another question that even in the face of ex having experiences with chanting Hare Krishna and like um, experiences that are like very much affirming the spiritual reality, still um, there are so many material desires that remain and they're very stubborn. So how does one have the patience to um, persist in their practice of chanting Hare Krishna in spiritual life um, when these very stubborn material desires are continuing to rise and like they're very much um, appealing because we're so familiar with taking shelter of um, of enjoying material desires and then also just pursuing them like it's very familiar to do um, so how does one have the patience to really take shelter of these higher experiences in the face of um, the persistence of material desires yeah yeah it can be really discouraging just to sit down and try to meditate or try to chant and after five minutes feel like I can't take this anymore. <laughs> My mind is going nuts. Mm -hmm. Like a like a two-year-old. Mm -hmm. It can be discouraging, but we shouldn't feel discouraged. Mm -hmm. Even Arjuna in the in the Gita, he tells Krishna what you're describing, this process of controlling the mind and actually being able to sit and experience trance, mm. sounds impossible. Mm. It sounds, he says, Arjuna says, it sounds more difficult than controlling the wind. Mm. And Krishna reassures him, he says, it is possible. It is possible. It takes practice and detachment. Mm. So... The soul, in its very nature, is transcendental and supremely potent. That as a minute spark of consciousness, we contain a small sampling of Krishna's unlimited power. Mm. And we're not meant to be controlled by this external material energy. 
when we take shelter of Krishna and the process of bhakti, that elevates us to our original spiritual condition, our original spiritual status. And in that position, it's very easy. The mind very easily falls into the control of the, of the soul. That's its, its natural position, is that the mind is meant to be subordinate to our very self. The mind is the, the instrument of thinking, feeling, and desiring. Mm-hmm. But I'm the person. I'm the driver of my life. They're my desires, they're my feelings, and they're my thoughts. Mm. I'm meant to be the one who has some control and influence over those things. Mm. It's actually a diseased condition when I don't have that self-control. When I can't control the demands of my senses, and I can't control the demands of my mind. Mm. We're meant to be in that position of control over our own life. But our culture is so toxic that it conditions us to be addicted to all these different things, whether it's drugs, television, sex, uh, money. Mm-hmm. All these things dominate our life and infiltrate our mind, mm-hmm. and we have no peace Mm. and no fulfillment no joy so we just have to be patient and Mm. and very confident that this practice will work for me Mm. when you're sick and you go to the doctor if you if you know that the doctor's good and he he he's able to diagnose you he says, you have this disease. This is your problem. I've seen so many patients like you. And he gives you medicine. Mm. And he says, within 7 to 14 days, mm. you'll be better. Mm. You feel so much relief. And you just take the medicine. And even if you're still suffering, you feel good. Because I know it's going to be finished in a matter of time. Mm. I'm going to feel healthy again. So, in our condition, we can't know what it really feels like to be spiritually healthy because we've been in this material world this this material existence for unlimited lifetimes this process of birth and death has been going on but by reading in the scriptures descriptions of saints and other self-realized souls we can get a glimpse of what that healthy life actually looks like. And we just need to remain confident that that can also manifest in my life. And that aside from that spiritual state of health, that perfectly clean and, and pure heart and, and mind, aside from that, there's no other worthwhile goal. There's nothing else to do here. So why not try to chant? Yeah. Um, I like, you mentioned that there's like a culture around, there can be a culture around intoxication and gambling and sex life and all these things. Um, and there's also a culture around this chanting of Hare Krishna. Can you speak a bit to the potency of 
chanting in association with others, like in kirtan, because I know there's there's two ways to chant. One is by japa, where yeah. it's like yeah. a personal meditation. Another way is this kirtan where there's music and a lot of people are chanting together. What's special about that, that doing it as a group, doing these activities together? One contemporary Vaishnava saint compares japa to like a, taking a tablet, a pill. Mm-hmm. It's... it's Helpful. You gotta take your daily vitamins. You know, you gotta you gotta chant every day. Maintenance. Finish your yeah. Chant chant your minimum uh, number of rounds. We chant on these beads. And mm-hmm. It's recommended a beginner can start with one round or two rounds. Maybe it takes ten minutes or fifteen minutes, and then work your way up to four rounds. Maybe it takes half an hour, mm-hmm. and then over time you can just keep increasing as mm-hmm. much as you like based on your attraction, your taste, and your determination to overcome your lower nature. As you realize, the more I chant, the more spiritual progress I make. So that's a baseline, a daily maintenance. But then, in addition to that, we have this kirtan, which you you were describing, you come together with others, and you chant with music, and you dance, and you sing. And this saint, he compared it to an injection. The kirtan is like into the veins medicine. Nice. It's very powerful. When you're really sick, taking one pill won't help you. Mm. You need to get an injection. My wife, I was telling this story the other day, just one or two episodes ago, how she had this uh, infection after she gave birth to our first child. And when they brought her into the hospital, they had to give her antibiotics intravenously to, through her, her veins mm-hmm. because there was that much risk that she would die from the infection because mm-hmm. it's a very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a uterine infection. So the uterus is it's like one of your internal organs. You know, if, if you don't treat that infection right away, then it'll spread throughout your body and kill you. So our material infection, this, this poison of, of selfishness and just material desire, which is actually the cause of all our suffering, desire is the, it's not desire in, in general is the cause of suffering, but material desire is the cause of suffering. Because these material pleasures actually do nothing to fulfill us. They just agitate our mind, they pollute our consciousness, and they just cake on more mud onto our heart. The, the analogy that was given in this flyer, which is from a, a Sanskrit verse, is that consciousness is compared to like a mirror. The, the mind is compared to a mirror. I'll start over. This analogy from, uh, that was given before from this flyer is based on a Sanskrit verse that compares the mind to a mirror. And material desire and material addiction is like so much dust and mud that's covered over our mind, which is meant to be a mirror for consciousness. We're meant to experience in our mind's eye, within the core of our awareness, the purity and the joy that is of our very self. We're, we're we exist on joy. We, we are made of joy and pure, pure consciousness. 
So Krishna tells Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita that an intelligent person avoids material pleasure because he understands they're temporary. All these pleasures are temporary. They have a beginning and an end. And so they're not actually a cause of any pleasure. Whether it's drugs or a good meal. You know, we're, we're, we, don't, we don't want to live for such things. When we're sick, we may need to take medicine. And when we're hungry, we need to eat. But this isn't the purpose of our life. We need to use the body as a vehicle for self-realization. Our life can't be meant to just fulfill the endless demands of the physical body. Respiritualize is a weekly podcast with new episodes every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern. We also host free courses on the science of bhakti yoga and ancient wisdom texts such as the Bhagavad Gita and Srimad Bhagavatam. For more information and to register for a course, visit www.respiritualize.com. If you have questions or comments from today's episode, or if you want to suggest a new topic for us to discuss on Respiritualize, please write to us at respiritualize at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Hare Krishna.